0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: You made it to Friday. It's the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Congratulations to you, Jim. Congratulations to you, and I guess to me as well. Uh, We have good, good, and crazy martinis for conservatives today to wrap up the week. Uh, Jim, I know the the massive, massive news that's going to just completely upend the Democratic primary system is that Tim Kaine has endorsed uh, Joe <laughs> Biden. And we know what a difference Tim Kaine makes to any candidate he supports.
0: Yeah. For those who don't remember, he was Hillary Clinton's running mate. That's not often you have to say. Actually, look, for for Joe Biden, you'd rather have that endorsement than not have it. Sure, and sure. Uh, Biden's going to hold a rally somewhere in the state this weekend. He's supposed to. There's a rumor that Terry McAuliffe is going to endorse him. For Joe Biden, this actually is pretty good to have, but you can you can just feel the enthusiasm coming through your speakers, can't you, dear listeners?
1: Yes, yes. When Jim calls people a whirling dervish of raw political charisma, the template really is Tim <laughs> Kaine, without a question. But let's get to our first good martini here, Jim. Let's talk about somebody who's uh, already in office, and that is Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, He is not speaking at CPAC. He is speaking, or at least was, I believe this was yesterday, at the National Religious Broadcasters meeting in Tennessee. And he did not mince many words when it comes to his disdain for progressivism. He says over the past few decades, those further to the left have increasingly identified themselves as progressives rather than liberals. And some of these self-proclaimed progressives have become increasingly militant and totalitarian in their style. While they seek power through the democratic process, their policy agenda has become more aggressively collectivist, socialist, and explicitly revolutionary. He says the crux of the progressive program is to use the public purse— to provide ever-increasing benefits to the public and to thereby build a permanent constituency of supporters who are also dependents. They want able-bodied citizens to become more dependent, subject to greater control, and increasingly supportive of dependency. The tacit goal of this project is to convert all of us into 25-year-olds living in the government's basement, focusing our energies on obtaining a larger allowance rather than getting a job, and moving out. So, uh, Jim, I haven't heard it put quite that starkly since Paul Ryan was talking about people looking at their faded Obama posters at the 2012 (laughs) convention. Uh, He says three institutions that usually served as a bulwark against this encroaching collectivism, religion, the decentralization of government power, and the free press uh, are all um, weaker than they had been, at least in this country. Uh, What do you make of Barr putting it so starkly?
0: Yeah, there are a couple of points here. The first is, uh, you know, with each passing week, I become an even bigger fan of Attorney General Barr. Um, just direct, clear, even, you know, I don't, articulate is, I guess, a bad word if you apply it to certain people. But like, you don't generally get this from an attorney general. And some people might say, oh, the attorney general has to remain above politics. But look, we all know. The Attorney General has views on all this stuff. I don't think there's any harm. It's not like he's, you know, coming out and specifically denouncing Bernie Sanders or, you know, FBI, go arrest that man, or anything like that. He's just laying out this is how Bill Barr sees the world, and this is why he does not share the philosophy of so many people who oppose the administration. I think he puts it pretty well. I, I think the other thing which is worth which he kind of, you know, really underlines here. First of all, I mean, the economy is doing well, but yeah, there are probably a lot of people who are in jobs they don't like they're in the service industry uh they don't see a path for advancement they feel like the wages they're making aren't nearly enough to cover rent food uh education they, they you know they I, I my suspicion is there are a lot of americans who do not lack for uh ambition or the desire for a better life but they don't have a particularly good sense of how to get there and i think we on the right ought to um always be you know it's very easy and a lot of fun to make fun of millennials and and all that stuff. But really, there are a lot of people in this world who want to do better in life, who want life to be, who want to make more money, who want to be able to get married, who want to be able to have kids, who want to be able to hold a home. They want to live the American dream for themselves. And our effort should be, hey, we want to help you do that. What Barr is doing here is pointing out that no matter how much we might agree with the left on the diagnosis of the problem, we do not agree with the solution. And when we would point to all these folks and say, look at how government does on just about any front right the epa put a ton of uh, of chemicals into a river and turned it yellow right um the government is you know filled up with human beings and human beings make mistakes and the difference between a government bureaucracy and a corporation is that corporations they do a bad job they go out of business if a government bureaucracy does a bad job it goes back to congress and says we don't have enough money to do our job please give us more and very often Congress believes them and says, well, obviously you are doing such a terrible job because you don't have enough money. Here's a lot more money. Clearly your performance will get better. And in many cases it does not. You know, it's nice to have an attorney general who, general who can lay this stuff out and who, whether or not, you know, the people who are, are li- literally living in their parents' basements, who are frustrated by their prospects in life. I don't know if they're going to listen to Attorney General Barr. I don't know if he's going to necessarily change their minds, but I like him coming out and saying it and putting it in such an apt and, and, you know, I think a a vivid way um, that's, you know, all in all, all the other things being equal, you'd probably rather not be living with your parents well into your 20s and into your 30s in some cases. You'd you'd like to have your own place. You'd like to be able to say, hey, I'm self-sufficient, independent. I can take care of myself. You know, the idea of government stepping in and replacing the role of your parents in that is really not that much of an improvement, and dependency is something we do not want to see take root in this country, although some would argue it already has.
1: All right, Jim, let's continue this discussion as we move into our second martini. It's our second good martini, and it goes along these same lines because, uh, as you just mentioned, when it comes to dependency, um, we're already kind of going down that road. But if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, we're really going to be swinging the pendulum farther and farther in that direction. So as the, the Sanders momentum grows... It's uh, somewhat gratifying and somewhat humorous to watch the media freak out about, oh, my gosh, this guy's really in love with socialism, as if they haven't uh, played footsie with it themselves over the years. But uh, Fareed Zakaria and David Brooks are are writing about this. Uh, Fareed Zakaria over at The uh, Washington Post with a couple of things. Uh, He says that Sanders uh, says he's not going to create another Cuba or Venezuela. No, 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 no. It's going to be the Scandinavian countries. He calls it uh, Sanders' Scandinavian fantasy, and he says uh, Sanders' vision of Scandinavian countries, as with much of his ideology, seems to be stuck in the 60s and 70s, a period when these countries were indeed pioneers in creating a social market economy. In Sweden, government spending as a percentage of gross domestic product doubled from 1960 to 1980, going from approximately 30% to 60%. But as Swedish commentator Johan Norberg points out, this experiment in Sanders-style democratic socialism tanked the Swedish economy. Between 1970 and 1995, he notes, Sweden did not create a single net new job in the private sector. And he also goes on to talk about uh, Denmark because there are Big social nets in some of these Scandinavian countries. But high taxes are the reasons, and uh, the middle class and the poor pay huge taxes over there. Anyone making 1.3 times the average national income pays 55.9% in taxes, meaning that would be the tax rate for anyone making more than $65,000 a year in this country. So, Jim, what do you know? More and more people seem to be waking up here.
0: I assume our listenership is familiar with Fareed Zakaria, a longtime columnist for Newsweek for a lot of years. Uh, eventually, he's had a, I guess he still has his show on Sundays on CNN. It's not, you know, enormously uh, uh, well watched, but Fareed Zakaria is basically Mr. Davos. Uh, if you want to talk about somebody who is very much part of the international business community, um, focusing on on trade and exchange and, and all of the, you know, the ruling class, whatever you want to characterize it. But he's by no means a a conservative or Republican or any stretch of the imagination when he is sounding the alarm on Bernie Sanders and his economics and how Sanders is completely misunderstanding what made the Nordic countries work the way they are. I also want to point out, in addition to completely agreeing with all of the economic conclusions of of the professor Nordberg in there, we should remember he came back from so many injuries when he was working (laughs) at police squad with with Frank Drebin. You know, yes, let's take a moment to remember Nordberg. Uh, the other one that jumped out at me, Greg, is David Brooks, longtime columnist for the New York Times. Way back in the 90s, uh he was with the you know he wrote for the Weekly Standard for a lot of years. You know, David Brooks, we have no illusions. He is if he's a man of the right, he is the man uh, he is a man of the very much the center right. Uh, he was the one who made the infamous comment about admiring the crease in Barack Obama's pants. And that he says something like, something like he knew the moment he saw the perfection of that crease that Obama was going to be a good president. And so, you know, I have enjoyed kind of teasing him about this. David, if you are a Democrat, David Brooks is the right of center. And I'm sure some people are saying, Jim, you should be using air quotes when you characterize him that way. David Brooks should be the easiest get of anybody on the right that you possibly could, Right. All you have to do is is just, you know, sound like you you are competent, that you understand the economy, that you're tolerant and easygoing. David Brooks today writes in his the headline of his column is no, not Sanders, not ever. Right. This is Mr. Reasonable, moderate Republican, basically trying to grab the readership of The New York Times and shake them and say, do you realize what you are about to do? The subhead is he is not a liberal He's the end of liberalism, right? This, you know, like, he cannot go any more intense. And I really like the way he puts it today. Where he makes a very interesting kind of way of characterizing it. He, he, goes, he makes all kinds of odes to liberalism and how great it is. And, and, all that stuff. and I'm not sure or our listenership are probably not full of folks who would, uh, who would put that. You know, I've just watched populism destroy traditional conservatism in the GOP. I'm here to tell you that Bernie Sanders is not a liberal Democrat. He's what replaces liberal Democrats. Um, and I think one of the ways I really love to it is populists like Sanders speak as if the whole system is irredeemably corrupt. Sanders was a useless House member and has been a marginal senator because he doesn't operate within this system or believe in this theory of change. He believes in revolutionary mass mobilization and once an election has been won, ruled by majoritarian domination. This is how populists that the left and right are ruling all over the world, and it's exactly what our founders feared most and tried hard to prevent, right? That needs to be up on billboards in Times Square. That needs to be something that everybody left of center has to recognize what they are signing on for, because I believe this column is just basically like Brooks pounding on the door of his colleague, Paul Krugman, because Paul Krugman is like, you know, earlier this week, well, Bernie Sanders isn't really a socialist. Bernie Sanders calls himself a socialist, <laughs> You know, Paul Krugman was like, look, I know what Bernie Sanders stands for better than Bernie Sanders does. And I think, you know, Brooks just was like, he's like two steps away from turning into Will Ferrell and screaming, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. It's kind of delightful to watch these people. But I also find myself in a rare moment of agreement with Reed Zakaria and David Brooks to recognize when they're frustrated with Trump, they they really are not on board with a lot of what the modern Republican Party stands for. They are much further to the left than I would like to be. But even they can look at Bernie Sanders and say, whoa, this is not what we signed on for. This is Bolshevik. This is, you know, creeping authoritarianism. And they're terrified of it. And it's kind of, you know, it's like I, I hope they succeed. I don't think they're going to. I think the outlook for non-Sanders Democrats is not looking good. But, uh, you know, it's kind of fun to watch and, you know, give them credit for your due. For as, ba- as leftward as these guys are, they, you know, they pump the brakes when it starts getting near Bolshevikism.
1: I got to ask this, though, Jim. Let's say that uh, Bernie Sanders was really popular and was matching up really well against Trump in the general election? Because I'm not convinced. I don't think, first of all, David Brooks and uh, maybe even Zakaria uh, want America to go down the road that Bernie Sanders would want to take us. But would we be seeing the giant freak out right now if Sanders was likely to win a head to head matchup? So is the freak out entirely over what he would do? Or is it uh, at least some, if not a majority, uh, related to the fact that they just think he can't beat Trump?
0: It is fair to argue that, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans, including myself, you know, like one of the reasons I was, you know, I was in the Never Trump camp in 2016, didn't think nominating him was a good idea, didn't think this would go, you know, you can go back and quote my stuff back to me. I thought there was really no chance Trump was going to win. Correction. And then as it went on, I was like, you know, Hillary's got some weaknesses here. He's competitive in Florida. I just didn't think that Trump would pull the inside straight of winning Florida and North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Ohio and either Wisconsin and Michigan and go figure he ended up winning all of them. So right. Good for him. Um, when you win, people forgive a lot, right? Conservatives didn't spend a lot of time complaining about the deficit and the debt when it was increasing under George W. Bush, right? You know, everybody everybody finds a way to get along better with they, that. I am sure the fact that they think Sanders is going to lose is a big reason of why they think the Democrats are on the way on the verge of making a terrible thing. But I think even they recognize there's a chance he wins right? There's this just, you know, too much instability in our politics that we've seen since 2016. We're a roughly 50-50 country. I think that in the end, um, they're, they genuinely fear who Sanders is, what he stands for, and what he wants to do to the
1: country. Yeah, I just wish some of these people, and I don't remember exactly what these two in particular wrote, but I remember when Obama decided to normalize relations with the Castros, and he sat next to Raul Castro at the baseball game. I don't remember anybody freaking out the way they are uh, in in reaction to... Sanders comments, although Sanders is probably more effusive in his praise, uh, or when Hugo Chavez said that the U.N. General Assembly smelled like sulfur the day after George W. Bush was there. A little consistency on this when it's not just who's about to become the Democratic nominee would be nice, too. But we should should welcome this analysis and the fact that it's very public when we do get it, because it doesn't happen often. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And politics ratchets up the emotions. Some people shoot from the the lip or the hip or the Twitter keyboard before they actually think a lot of times. And we have another example of that. And Garth Brooks, uh, one of the most successful country music artists of all time, of course, uh, still out there touring. And Saturday night, he was doing a concert in Detroit. That's where the Lions play. And they actually honored perhaps the greatest line of all time, running back Barry Sanders, who uh, was there from about 1989 to 1998, nearly became the NFL's all-time leading rusher. If he had had a real offensive line, he probably would have. Uh, Basically, he was a video game guy in real life, Uh, all sorts of uh, amazing abilities to make guys miss and uh, breakaway speed and all sorts of other things. So Garth Brooks wears a Barry Sanders jersey for his concert. Barry Sanders' number was twenty. So Garth Brooks is wearing a jersey that says Sanders 20. It's entirely a tribute to Barry Sanders, but that's not how other people saw it. All sorts of social media grief from this. Instagram followers, good grief. Can't you just do what you get paid to do? Why, why, why does it have to involve politics? So sad. We don't pay good money for anything other than to watch you perform. Thought you were different. Another one. Lost some respect with that jersey. (laughs) If this is for Bernie Sanders, I'm done with you. I thought you were a true American that loves our country. And then, of course, there are people from the Bernie side. Love the Sanders jersey. Feel the burn. So, Jim, basically what happened here, Garth Brooks is trying to perform. And he's got some friends in low places who see what he's wearing. And all of a sudden, they turn it political and the thunder rolls. And all of a sudden, they're doing this political dance. And it turns into this raucous uh, rodeo. He's trying to stand outside the fire. And the next thing you know, uh, the whole thing erupts. So uh, just how stupid have our politics gotten?
0: You know, Greg, because I, I, I heard about this and I chuckled about it and I realized, you know, it's not like there's it's not like Bernie Sanders and Barry Sanders have nothing in common. For starters, you for both cases, you can say you can't stop them. You can only hope to contain them. <laughs> Much like the coronavirus. Uh, but I realized that if, you know, let's say Emmanuel Sanders, who recently played for San Francisco all the way into the Super Bowl, I believe the free agent this year, if Emmanuel Sanders signs with the Jets and he has a really phenomenal year with the Jets. Do you think I'm going to hesitate to buy a Sanders jersey because he happens to share the name of a political figure I can't stand? If the Democrats nominated Norman Toon, I'm not putting away my '88 jersey from the 1980s. Right? If you, um, I'm trying to think who else. Who else do I have jerseys of? If, if somebody named crebet ends up being a socialist demo- candidate for the Democrats, I'm not throwing out my crebet Jersey because it's not them. Not all Sanders are interchangeable, right? You, you would think if nothing else, people would have learned from the 1996 Senate race right here in Virginia that pitted Republican John Warner <laughs> against Democrat Mark Warner. Not everybody with the same name is interchangeable. And you sit there and you think, yeah, I believe John Warner won. I hope people knew who they were voting for. Um, <laughs> A lot of bumper stickers that year said, Mark, not John, and John, not Mark. And people thought it was some weird gospel, uh, biblical dispute going on or something like that. But, you know, but maybe, I suppose, deep in his heart of hearts, Garth Brooks really does have – psycho. He really, if you really are a fan of him, I guess that's a really subtle way to indicate that, you know, I'm still on your side. But I'm in country music, so I can't let anyone know. You know? But all in all, I think it's because he's in Detroit. Wow.
1: Well, I guess you got to be careful now when you go into KFC, because, you know, not only do you have uh, <laughs> Colonel Sanders there with his wee beady eyes and, uh, you know, he's, uh, getting you addicted to those um, 11 herbs and spices. He's even got white hair, just like Bernie. It's going to be tough for Trump supporters to go to well, KFC, at least until when I'm in November. charge.
0: yo, know, your fingers will be licking good because that's the only thing you'll have to eat.
1: Oh, man. Speaking of dumb, just to throw it in there, uh, there's a new survey out showing that uh, 38% of Americans won't buy Corona beer under any circumstances because of the coronavirus outbreak. And 14% said they wouldn't order a Corona in public, which, Jim, I don't know what you think about Corona. Maybe that's just good advice all around, but people are just losing it here.
0: Corona beer is fine. You know, you put in the lime, it's cold, it's a hot day, it's, it's you know, that that's I'm not, not rarely my first beer of choice, but I have no objections to it. But Greg, instead it of it a poll of adults, it's safe to assume that a chunk of those people are registered voters and all of their votes count as much as ours, listeners. <laughs> all of a sudden, you're looking at non-democratic systems and saying, well, wait a second. OK, maybe, you know, maybe we judge this poll testing thing a little too harshly. So, Yes. Ah, so reassuring.
1: Yes, okay. we do have a little business to conduct here, though, Jim, because we got to let folks know nothing's happening here with the three martini lunch, but uh, we've got a little competition coming. Uh, later this spring, and it's important to point that out so folks are aware of this. Uh, Politico reporting, Hillary Clinton is starting a podcast. The former First Lady, Secretary of State, and 2016 Democratic presidential nominee is planning to launch a new audio program in late spring, just in time for her to have a powerful new megaphone during the 2020 election. And it says here the show is yet to be titled... So, Jim, I think in, in in the spirit of welcoming a new competitor to the arena, perhaps we should uh, encourage a new title for the podcast. And she's still trying to figure out what it is. Uh, I was thinking of uh, different podcast titles from different eras of the of the Hillary Clinton uh, experience in public <laughs> life, starting with the White House. Could go with between two lamps instead of between two ferns because she <laughs> uh,
0: between two. I, I really look that doesn't sell as well as people think it does. <laughs>
1: Uh, She famously threw a lamp during her White House years. There's the carpetbagger when she ran for Senate.
0: Uh,
1: There's dead broke and painfully woke uh, politics and pantsuits or how to lose an unlosable election. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what came to mind for you.
0: How about what's happening for the previous book called What Happens? It takes a podcast. Um, How about lived history instead of living history? It's past tense. Um, hard choices, you know, that, that, that was the title of her 2014 book. Yep. Turns out voting for her was a much harder choice than she thought it was, <laughs> but I, I, shouldn't be surprised, Greg. She's heard about how lucrative life in the podcasting business is. And, you know, it was just a matter of time before she, she got into this. Well,
1: if there's anything people love, it's the sound of Hillary Clinton's voice. So I'm sure it'll be a huge success <laughs> and, uh, we welcome her to the field. So, uh, Jim primary tomorrow super tuesday tuesday a lot of waiting us have a great weekend
0: greg i don't know about you this week has been a long month
1: <laughs> it has you know what happened this month acquittal state
0: of the union oh my god you're you're <laughs> right like greg that feels like it was years ago i know my understanding is also like i believe just right before we came on air i completed the count I'm not kidding. Like they, they finished their recount of the last few precincts and all that stuff. So it, it only took them. Looking at my calendar, a whole month. What was it? Uh, the third. Yeah. So pretty much the entire month. Way to go, Iowa. Way to go.
1: Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with lots of stars. And also, don't forget that you can uh, hear us on those home surveillance devices. Alexa, Google Home. All you have to do is say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a fantastic weekend, and we will see you right back here Monday for the Three Martini Lunch.